And uh, my name is Nick Boltink, and I have the humble privilege to serve you here at Redeemer Bible Church as one of your elders. And on the heels of Pastor Vic's last week's sermon, I want to reiterate that it's truly a humble privilege to serve you here. So today I will be taking us across the finish line, closing out the book of 1 Peter. We started this journey on October 4th of last year. We've been marching methodically verse by verse through this book. And I want to take a minute and step back. Now, if someone asked you, like, hey, what is the main theme? What is the point of 1 Peter? What would you say? If somebody came up to you at work and said, hey, you go to church. Like, I've seen it online. You've been walking through this book for six months. What's the main theme? Like, what's the overarching point of 1 Peter? Like, what would you say? I don't want you to miss the forest within the trees. You see, church, the main point of 1 Peter is that believers are to endure suffering by giving themselves to God. It is to encourage believers to suffer well by giving themselves to God. Now, the Holy Spirit weaves instruction about all sorts of different facets of life through this letter, but overall, it's about perseverance in suffering. Now, I personally think that the 5th through 11th verse in this 5th chapter, before a short closing, it's the final verses of the chapter, it gives us a key to endurance in suffering. It gives us a cure, an antidote to suffering well. So with 1 Peter open, turn to 1 Peter 5, and please stand with me, as is the tradition of our church. And I'm going to read verses 1 to 11. Despite the, the fact that this message starts in verse 5, I'm going to start in verse 1 for the sake of context. So 1 Peter 5, verses 1 through 11, it says, So, some versions say, therefore. So I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder and as a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Verse 5. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another, for God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you had suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Please be seated. As I said, verse 1 over here begins with the word so. Some, verses, some translations say therefore. And it's difficult sometimes to try to begin a passage to understand what the Lord is saying on the first word of therefore. So I want to unpack a little bit what the Lord is trying to convey. Chapter 5 is on the heels of chapter 4, obviously, but the Holy Spirit in chapter 4 is telling us to not be surprised when we encounter fiery trials. Don't be surprised. We're told to rejoice in these trials. 
We're told to entrust our soul to a faithful savior, a faithful creator, and continue to suffer while doing good. Therefore, chapter five, I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and as a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker of the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in charge, but be an example to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility, because God opposes the proud, but gives strength and grace to the humble. You see, the Holy Spirit, again, is weaving lessons and practical instructions to the church through the theme of suffering and trials and endurance. It is not easy to suffer well. It's not easy to endure fiery trials. And that's one of the reasons why God here is telling us, telling the appointed elders to exercise oversight over the flock. Those who are younger in the faith be subject to those who are elders. This is an area in life where godly men appointed as elders can share wisdom, not knowledge, but wisdom. Knowledge is knowing that a tomato is a fruit. Wisdom is knowing not to put it in a fruit salad. (laughs) You don't need knowledge when you are suffering. You don't need facts when you're going through a fiery trial. You need prayer and wisdom. In the middle of verse 5, there's a pivot. I don't know if you caught it. It says, likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility, because God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Did you catch it there? He's going from giving instruction to those who are younger in the faith to all of you. Instructing everyone, all believers. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Close yourself, all of you, with humility. Now, I don't know about you, but sometimes when I ask my children to do things, they look at me and they say, why? And in my heart, I'm like, because I told you to do so, and I'm your father. And there's times to be obedient. And here, how much more so, though, when God tells us to do something? Close yourself, all of you, with humility. Yes, God. But he gives us the why. He tells us why. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humility is a virtue. And I'll argue from the scriptures that it's a chief virtue. It is the chief virtue, the mark of a Christian life. Now to be clear, Colossians 3 tells us that Love binds everything together in perfect harmony. We're told to put on love. God is love. We're told these three remain, faith, hope, and love. And of the greatest of these is love. So love transcends virtue. God is love. Love is something that is no longer a virtue. It transcends it. Love is in a category all by itself. And with that clarification, I'll say again, humility should be the chief virtue of a Christian. Not honesty, not courage, not generosity, dependability, integrity, patience. All of these are good. And look at the fruits of the Spirit. Again, love transcends virtue, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. All of these things are good, and they're virtues that should mark a Christian. But the chief among all of these is humility. 
And we're told here to clothe ourselves in humility. Church, humility is not a popular topic. It's not a sought-after value in our culture. I challenge one of you to find me a secular business or enterprise that lifts humility as a core value. I challenge you. I, I tried. It is mostly viewed as weakness. But let me share with you from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 27 through 31. It says, But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God showed what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not to bring nothing to to bring to nothing things that are. Why? So that no human being may boast in the presence of God. Humility. The phrase, clothe yourself, is used only once in the Bible. It's found nowhere else. Not coincidentally, the root word for the, 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 root word for the Greek word, clothe yourself, comes from the word to fasten, gird on, strap on like a belt. And the root word for that is this white scarf or apron that slaves would have to wear walking around in public to distinguish themselves from the free men and women back in the, back in the day. Now, we are told to clothe ourselves with humility. We are to be slaves to each other, slaves to the Lord. And you miss this word play in English, but I don't want you to miss it. This is what they would have heard when they, when they read this for the first time. Elsewhere in scripture, Ephesians 6 tells us we're to put on the armor of God so that we may be able to withstand the schemes of the devil. And we love talking about the armor of God. Christian men especially love it. The breastplate of righteousness, the shield of faith, the shoes, the gospel of peace, the sword. We love talking about this, but what goes on before your armor is clothing? Before the breastplate, before you pick up your shield and your sword, you have to put your clothes on. And back in the Roman day, they would put on their tunic before putting on this armor. So the closest thing to your body was your clothing. And without humility, we're woefully incomplete when we walk out. So clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And I love, I love when the Holy Spirit uses Old Testament and when the inspired New Testament writers use it. It's like God is giving us a commentary on his own word. I love it. And that, that phrase, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble, is first found in Proverbs 3, Proverbs 3 and 4. And it should be no surprise to you that immediately following instruction on humility comes instruction on pride. Pride is the opposite of humility. Pride, arrogance, haughtiness. These are all antonyms of humility. God is against pride. He is in opposition to pride. A few scriptures. Proverbs 11.2, when pride comes, then comes disgrace. Proverbs 13.10, where there is strife, there is pride. Proverbs 16.5, the Lord detests the proud of heart. Proverbs 16.8, pride goes before destruction. Pride was the sin that got Adam and Eve kicked out of Eden. Pride was the sin that got the devil thrown out of heaven. Pride leads 
the list of vices, whereas humility leads the list of virtue. God opposes the proud. On the other hand, he gives grace, unmerited favor to the humble. And I was asked recently, how do you know if you're humble? Somebody asked me that. I was like, oh man, I don't know. So I, looking at the scriptures, praying, thinking over it, like, how do you know if you're humble? Pride and arrogance can also disguise themselves in things that are seemingly good. So how do you know if you're truly humble? I would say two things. First, who receives the glory for anything good in your life? Not only in your spoken words, not only in your social media, but also in your heart. Who receives the glory for anything good in your life? Some people give glory to God with their words easily, but in their hearts they hold it for themselves. While others will give God the glory in their hearts, but struggle with boldness to be with their words to tell people that God receives the glory. Who receives the glory? The second thing I would offer you is, is the nature of Christ on display during your interactions with people. It is impossible to model Christ and to be prideful. It's impossible. You cannot model Christ and be prideful. Is the nature of Jesus on display during your interactions with people? Verse six continues the theme of humility, but it transitions from humility towards one another to humility towards the Lord. Humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God so at the proper time he may exalt you. Jewish history is rich with examples of the Lord's mighty hand. No doubt, Jewish Christians, when hearing this letter read to them out loud in the first century, would have immediately recognized the phrase, the mighty hand of God. Specifically, Exodus 3, when God tells Moses that he himself will lead his people out of Egypt by his mighty hand. Also, Numbers 11. The people are grumbling, say they should never have left Egypt because they don't have any food. God supplies them manna, and then they're grumbling because they have no meat and all they have is manna. In Numbers 11, God says to Moses, I'm going to give them meat. I'm going to give them meat for a month. I'm going to give them so much meat, it's going to be coming out of their nostrils, and it's going to become loathsome to them. And Moses says to God, like, God, there's 600,000 men. How are you going to do that? And the Lord's response in Numbers 11, 23 <clears throat> Is the mighty hand of the Lord shortened? Now you shall see whether my word will come true or not. Church, in a real sense, the Christian life begins with humility. When the Lord gives you faith, he removes your heart of stone and gives you a heart of flesh. You repent and believe in the gospel. Repentance requires humility. Recognizing we cannot manufacture our salvation that we are dead in our sin, sins and trespasses, requires true humility before God. For those in Christ, there is a definitive one-time humbling before God when he opens your eyes. Now, we are told over and over and over again to remain humble. Jesus was calling his people to repent and believe, and pride over and over and over again was the stumbling block. Something I struggled with this past week in my mind, trying to reconcile it, was, church, if humility, like I say it is, is the chief virtue, why is it not a fruit of the Spirit? Like, why? And I searched, and I prayed, and I read, and I asked my wife about it, and I'm trying to struggle through this. 
And I could not make sense of why the Holy Spirit didn't inspire Paul in Galatians 5 to include it on the list. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Humility is writ large in Scripture, yet it's left off the list. Another conundrum I had, like, the Bible tells me to humble myself. It tells you over and over again, humble yourself, humble yourself. There's more. Here's, here's 10 of them or so. 1 Peter 5, 6, James 4, 10, Matthew 23, 12, 2 Chronicles 7, 14, Luke 14, 11, Matthew 18, 4, Isaiah 58, 5, Proverbs 6, 3, 2 Corinthians 11, 7, 1 Kings 21, 29. Like, there's more. Old Testament, New Testament. Humble yourself. Humble yourself. Humble yourself. And I'm like, there's nothing, nothing good comes from me. Like nothing good is inside of me. Why am I told to humble myself? Like I need you to do this. And the Bible tells us so many times you cannot like do theological gymnastics around this. You cannot try to figure out a way where, oh no, well, the Lord's really gonna humble me, but I'm, I'm gonna humble myself. And no, 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 he tells us many times, humble yourself. And here's what I believe the Lord is telling us. Fruits of the Spirit are given to you by the Lord, by His Spirit. They're evidence that the Spirit is inside of you working. The marks of a follower of Christ. To humble yourself is a verb, it's an action. The Lord is giving you instruction on how to act. If you are a Christian, you're indwelt with the Holy Spirit. You have love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, all of these things that the fruit of the Spirit has in varying degrees. And as your life goes on, there will be more of it, God willing. And you are to be humble. You are to humble yourself. Over and over in Scripture, we do not see God giving people humility like we do see him giving people the fruits of the Spirit after they place their faith in Christ. But we see him humbling people. See Peter. See Paul. See King Nebuchadnezzar, see King David, see Naaman. Like the, the, the scripture has plenty of examples where like God humbles people. And here's two counterexamples, Moses. Like what about Moses? Numbers 12.3, the Lord himself says that Moses in Numbers 12.3, the Lord himself says that Moses was the most meek and humble man to walk the earth. What about John the Baptist? John the Baptist was a man who knew his calling from the womb. He knew his place in, in life when he told authorities that he's not even worthy to touch the sandal of the one who is to come. And look at the humility that flowed out of John when he met Jesus for the first time. Like Jesus had to instruct him point blank, like, no man, you're baptizing me. This is what the Lord wills. And John humbled himself and did it. In Matthew eleven eleven, Jesus even said that of all the prophets, John the Baptist was the greatest. Humble yourself, church. We're not only told by God to clothe ourselves with humility, but we're given three reasons why. One, God opposes the proud. Two, he gives grace to the humble. Now, as an aside, be careful. Do not think that humility is the vehicle by which we obtain grace. Thinking that I can be humble and God will give me grace ultimately leads to look how good I am at being humble. Ultimately, that will lead to that. Then this thinking inevitably results in pride, and that is the antithesis of humility. So we're saved by grace, unmerited favor, undeserved favor, through faith in Christ. Ephesians 2 says we're dead in our sins and trespasses. 
Again, humility is not the vehicle through which grace is obtained. And yes, God gives grace to the humble. So one, God opposes the proud. Two, he gives grace to the humble. And three, verse six, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. So at the proper time, he will exalt you. God's mighty hand is there to exalt the humble. And here's a piece of practical advice. And this is like antithetical to what the world is going to tell you. Do not seek titles. Don't seek attention. Don't seek glory. Don't seek fame. Rather, run from it. Defer credit to other people. Run from attention. Run from fame. Run from credit. Run from the accolades. Run from these things so that you do not become prideful. Force the mighty hand of God to exalt you. Force the mighty hand of God to exalt you rather than exalting yourself. God's mighty hand is there to exalt the humble at the proper time. And you may be asking, like, Nick, when's the proper time? And the answer is, that's for God to know and not us. And you may be thinking, I have been suffering for a while and I'll say to you, 2 Peter 3, 8 and 9. Do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and as a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any of you should perish, but that all should reach repentance. The fact is, the proper time when the Lord will exalt you may be tomorrow, maybe next week, maybe next month, maybe next year, maybe next decade, may not even be while you're walking here on this earth. However, take heart, because one day you will stand before the living God and he will exalt you and your rewards will be the riches of heaven. And the suffering you experienced here on this earth will be like a tiny single grain of sand compared to a vast beach. Now we get to verse seven and we must realize that it's not a new sentence. It's not written originally as a new sentence. And verse seven is the second half of verse six and its importance is missed if you don't grab the connection between the two. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Humility under God is attained by casting your anxieties on him. Not some of your anxieties, but all of them. All your anxieties. Humble yourself and cast your anxieties. The idea of casting comes from the fishing industry. And when this letter was written, casting wasn't with a reel and a rod, kind of like we think it now. Rather, it would have given readers the imagery of large nets. Large nets with weights entangled in them. And these, wets would, these nets would be used by fishermen. They would drag them out in their boats and they would throw them. They would cast them over the side and they would let them down and hope to catch large sums of fish in them. Hoping that the large sums of fish would be entangled in them and then they would be dragged back onto the shore, onto the boat. You see, church, our anxieties are like those nets weighed down that entangle us. 
And the Lord is telling us that we are to cast all our anxieties on him. Why? Again, he doesn't have to tell us, but he does because he cares for you. Do not lose sight. Do not let it become commonplace. Do not let it become commonplace in your life that the Lord cares for you. Like the God who created the universe and holds all things together cares for you. And the important link between verses six and seven is that you must humble yourself. You must be full of humility to earnestly cast all your anxieties on him. You must humble yourself and have a high view of God's sovereignty to cast your anxieties on him. You must humble yourself and understand that he does care for you even when you think he's far away. You must humble yourself and believe that he is listening to you even when you feel that he is not. You must humble yourself and believe that he's there even when you feel he's gone. Humble yourself and know that God is sovereign. Cast your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be at peace. The Lord tells us not to worry about where we sleep or what we'll eat. He knows when a sparrow falls and how much greater are we than a sparrow. The answer is to humble ourselves, to take our anxieties earnestly to him, bring them to the Lord, this heavy-weighted mess that tangles us down, cast it on him. Verse 8 and 9 transition from the action words of humble and casting to other action words. Sober-minded, be sober-minded, be watchful, resist. Humble yourself, cast your anxieties. Be sober-minded, be watchful, resist. These instructions are back to back to back. Because when you humble yourself, when you cast your anxieties on him, there is no doubt that the devil will try to snatch you back. The devil does not want to see you free from anxieties. He does not want to see you humble yourself before the Lord. Humble yourselves, therefore, into the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in the faith, knowing the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. The devil throughout scripture is mainly depicted as uh, a serpent. Guile, cunning, deceitful, sneaky, the one who seduces, deceives, lies. He accuses. And that's a whole other sermon for a different time to go through exactly who the devil is. But here, he's depicted as a roaring lion. And first, I will say, one, the devil is real and he is your enemy. Two, he is not God. He is not omnipotent. He's not omniscient, and he's not omnipresent. He does not know everything. He can only be one place at one time, and he has limited power. He is not God. Aside from trying to convince you that he does not exist, the two biggest arrows he has in his quiver, the two biggest tools he has in his tool belt are isolation and condemnation. He will try to isolate you from other believers and he will try to condemn you. Like, do you know what you've done? Do you know who you are? The blood of Christ, oh, it's good for that person, but it can't cover what you did. Isolation, condemnation. And he, is, he does exist. 
But sticking with the text in front of us today, we're told to be sober-minded, be watchful, because the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking to devour. The devil we know from elsewhere is sneaky and guile and disguises himself as an angel of light. But here, again, we're told he's a roaring lion, and I wrestled with this. I'm like, God, again, I'm like, what does this mean? Like, I have no idea. Like, when lions are hunting, have you guys ever watched a show where lions are hunting? It is the most calculated, stealthily, lethal, sneaky thing I've ever seen. And here we're told that the devil is a roaring lion, not, not sneaking around stealthily in the brush trying to kill something. And I thought I would never say these words, but had God had it, um, I was preparing the sermon last week, and again, I never thought I'd say these words, but as I was preparing the sermon, God providentially put me in Las Vegas. Like, Las Vegas, out of all places. And frankly, I mean, in, in my mind, again, in my mind, Vegas is the epicenter of, like, sin and immor- immorality. And the last place I want to be to try to put together a message. But the Holy Spirit used my surroundings, as he often does, to explain what he's trying to convey in this text. I'm in my room preparing for this message at nighttime after I got done working, and I'm, and I'm getting hungry, and I got to go out and get some food. So I put some earbuds in, and I'm walking down the strip of Vegas, and, and I'm praying, and I'm listening to Shane and Shane, volume one hymns, like, oh, Lord, help me. And I'm praying, and like, there's sin all around me. Like, there's idolatry, there's drunkenness, there's like sexual temptation, there's debauchery, there's everything. And you, it, it, it hits me as I'm walking. Like, church, the devil is cunning and guile and sneaky, but he's also overt. Like, he's also right in your face, roaring like a lion. So be sober-minded and be watchful. Like, you don't need to be sober-minded and be watchful because he's cunning Here it's telling you to be sober-minded and be watchful because you need all your focus, you need all your attention, you need all your faculties to fight a lion. To fight the temptation that is right in front of you, barreling down, you need everything you got. So don't miss this. There will be times, and that time may be right now for you, where you will be face-to-face with the enemy a roaring lion, like trying to devour you. And you must be sober-minded and you must be watchful. And verse nine tells us, resist him. How? Resist him, firm in your faith. And theologians disagree over like, what does firm in your faith mean? Some say it means being steadfastly, solidly grounded in your God-given Christian faith. And others say, no, it means being steadfastly, solidly grounded in the faith, the doctrine, the word of God. Here, here's what R.C. Sproul said. He said, Doctrine has to do with God's revealed truth. And those who master the doctrine of the word of God have a solid foundation by which they are empowered to resist the devouring enemy. Like, truth. And both of these lines of thinking are biblical. So it's a both-and scenario for me. Resist the devil, firmly rooted in your God-given faith, and resist the devil, firmly rooted in doctrine. Both-and. Verse 9, resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace has called, who called you, to his eternal life 
his glory, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Verse nine again, resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Resist him, firm in the faith. Knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by other Christians everywhere. What are the devouring jaws of the lion that we are specifically warned against here? What is the power of the devil depicted as the roaring lion that we are here to resist? It is the suffering that leads us to give in to the devil. It's the suffering that leads us to give in to the devil who will devour your faith. It's the suffering that leads you to think like God is not here. It's the suffering that make you think that he's abandoned you. We're, we're to resist the devil, firm in the faith, knowing that many other Christians are suffering as well. The Holy Spirit is telling us right here that this roaring lion is in your face and he's using suffering as an obvious, overt way to try to pull you away from the Lord. You see, the only way the devil wins is if he devours your faith. You can lose everything in this world. Everything. And if your faith remains, he loses. You can lose everything to include your life. And when you take your last breath, you'll exhale and you'll stand before the living God and he will say, welcome home, and he loses. So resist the devil and I pray that you do not despair in your suffering. Rather, look at it as the devil himself roaring as a lion trying to snatch your faith. Resist thinking that God does not care for you. Resist thinking that he is not there. Resist the temptation that your suffering is in vain. Be rooted firmly in your faith. Be rooted firmly in the word of God and doctrine. And when you think you've exhausted all your faith, when you think your suffering is about to take over, then cry out to God. He gives grace to the humble. Humble yourself. Cry out to him. He will give you grace. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brothers throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. After you have suffered a little while, and I do not want to minimize the pain, the hurt, the suffering that's going on in your life right now. I stand up here knowing many of your stories. And the word does not minimize it as well. It says you're suffering. And my heart breaks for you like I pray for you guys daily. My family prays for you. But it says right here in verse 10 that you are suffering. You will suffer. But the context, think about the context that this letter was written in the first century. Peter's in Rome. There's a great persecution about to be an even greater persecution under Nero. Peter is walking to his death, about to be crucified upside down, so they knew a thing or two about suffering. After you have suffered a little while, and a little while is similar to verse 6's proper time that we discussed earlier. After you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. 
contrast suffering for a little while with God's eternal glory in Christ to which he called you. Not only do you share eternity with Jesus, but Jesus himself will restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Again, church, do not let this become commonplace in your mind, in your heart, or on your lips that God himself is going to do this to you. And verse 11 is a doxology. It's a beautiful doxology. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Now remember, church, 1 Peter is about suffering. And I told you that I believe that we are given the key to endurance and suffering, the antidote, the cure, if you will. We need to clothe ourselves with humility. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. Cast our anxieties on him. Resist the devil's attempts to devour our faith because of our suffering. Church, we ultimately resist the devil, firm in our faith, by submission to God. James 4, 7 says, submit yourselves to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Submit yourselves to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Humility. Humility, church, is the precursor to submission. Humility is the precursor to surrender. You see, the Christian life is ultimately about surrender. And humility comes before surrender. The gospel is this, like, there is a God. And because of our sin, there is a chasm fixed between us and him, and he is holy. And we, in our own selves, cannot overcome that chasm. Yet because of the great love with which he has for us, he sent his son to live a perfect life on this earth, to die, and then to be resurrected from the dead, conquering life. And the hope and redemption that we have here on earth is that by placing our faith in him, we have that life as well. By humbling ourselves, we surrender, we repent, we believe in the gospel, we're taken from death to life, and by constantly humbling ourselves and submitting ourselves to God, we are given strength. Strength to resist the devil, strength to suffer, strength to endure, strength to persevere until the proper time. And at that proper time, his mighty hand will exalt you. Look to Jesus, the final days on, of of his on this earth. He gathers his disciples around a table, knowing that a grueling death was coming, and he washes his disciples' feet. Whew, humility. But don't miss this. Like, he washed all of his disciples' feet. He washed Judas's feet, too. The man who was about to betray him, who was about to turn him over to authorities, washed his feet. Jesus, modeling humility for us. Contrast that with shortly thereafter, still at the table. The disciples are then arguing about who's going to be the greatest in their kingdom. And Jesus tells them, like, if you want to become the greatest, you've got to become the least. Whoever, earlier he tells them, whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Church, spiritual maturity and humility have a direct relationship. 
Spiritual maturity, humility, direct relationship. The more you know and believe in the Lord, unequivocally, the more humble you are. The more you know and believe of the glory and the holiness of the Lord, the more in focus your sin becomes. And the more you realize how unworthy you are. I'll close with a story that you may have heard. There was a guy who lived in the 1800s. His name was Horatio Spafford. He was a prominent lawyer and real estate investor. And tragedy stuck his family, and they lost his four-year-old son. Shortly thereafter, in the great fire of 1871, like a majority of investments burned to the ground. And amidst all this tragedy, they decide, him and his four remaining children decide to take a trip across Europe to go hear this famous guy preach in England, one of his good friends. And uh, as the providence of God would have it, he got tied up last minute in some business dealings and he couldn't go on the vacation. His wife and family got sent overseas. And as they're steaming across this ship, across the Atlantic, it hits another vessel. His four remaining children died. His 18-month-old, his four-year-old, his seven-year-old, his 12-year-old died, drowned. He heard about it, and his wife eventually got to England and sent a two-word telegraph. It said, saved alone. So he gets on his ship to go meet his wife in England. And at one point, the captain calls him up and says, hey, man, I'm aware of the tragedy that struck your family. This is the spot that we're over right now where your kids died. And imagine this man suffering. Oh, man. And it was then and there, under the context of this great devastation, it was right there. He penned these words. He said, When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, Whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well with my soul. Though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and has shed his own blood for my soul. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, O oh, my soul. O oh, Lord, haste the day when my faith shall be sight. The clouds be rolled back as a scroll. The trump shall resound and the Lord shall descend. Even well, even then, it is well with my soul. Church, what an example of humility in suffering. Leading to surrender. This suffering would not end with his faith being devoured by the devil. Rather, by humbling himself before the Lord, his surrender resulted in victory. And Christians with the same suffering for generations and for generations to come have been strengthened and encouraged by these words. We're going to close with this song. And as the musical worship team comes on to the stage, I want you to take stock of your own life. Have you humbled yourself before the Lord? Have you surrendered to him? Have you humbled yourself before Jesus? But also, have you humbled and surrendered your anger, your pride, 
your broken marriage, your wayward children, the death of a loved one, the chaos in your home, shattered, family, shattered relationships with friends and family, the loss of a job, your suffering. Have you, through humility, surrendered it to God? Clothe yourself in humility. And you may be wondering at times why people raise their arms when we're worshiping in song. See, having your arms raised is the universal sign understood in every culture and every language of surrender. It's given up. You go anywhere in the world and they understand it. Both arms raised high is the symbol to surrendering to authority. And church, once again, God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. In a military context, the side that raises their arms in surrender has lost. But in life, raising your hands, surrendering to God is the starting point for eternal victory. Victory is in surrender. And it begins by humbling yourself. Humble yourself. Surrender to God.